0: 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, the Bible reads, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of a Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ abided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus, besides I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. All right, let's pray. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon this time as we study the book of Corinthians. Let it change us as a church and what you would have us to be. Help us to see the pitfalls here from this church and to address those in our own lives and the body of our own church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to speak to you tonight on the topic of, is Christ divided? And we're going to look at verse 10 is kind of Paul's thesis statement as he begins this letter to the church in Corinth. He says, you know, I hear that there's contentions among you, and he kind of writes to address all of that. So we're going to spend a lot of time on verse 10, and then I'll quickly move us from there, 11, 12, a little bit shorter, and then we'll we'll finish through verse 17 very briefly tonight. So if you feel like the hour is about up and you're thinking to yourself, he's still in 10. There's no way we're getting this done without two parts. Promised promise to get you through in two parts. That's kind of become the running joke. I can't seem to get a sermon done in one time, so we have part one and part two. The last Sunday morning service ended up with three parts to it on the Sermon on the Mount. To prove the statistics wrong Sunday morning, I'm preaching to you all of Luke 7, all at one time, 54 verses. So I got laughed at by a couple people already when I told them that, but I'm, we're going to make it happen, all right? So is Christ divided? We begin with an appeal in verse number 10. So Paul's appeal, he says, "Now I beseech you brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment." Now I want to point out first here that he begins with addressing them as brethren. And if you were here the last couple of Wednesday nights, you remember his encouraging introduction to this letter. You've been called to be saints. Now he's, he's writing to a church in trouble. He's writing to a church with lots of issues that he's going to have to deal with. But he doesn't begin with that. He begins with something nice. He begins with something edifying. He begins with something that's very helpful. You've been called to be saints. The grace of God is shown in your life. And he continues that same sentiment here in addressing them as brethren. Even when getting into these problems that he is writing about, I want you to notice that he still is not dividing himself from them. This is very helpful in our own dealing with each other. These, these guys are involved in something Paul would never want to be involved in and he's hoping they will correct it and he would have to divide himself from them should they not correct it. But until then, he still calls them brothers, brothers and sisters in the faith, part of the family. He, he doesn't... Say, now you people have all of these problems or you bunch of heathens, I'm I'm writing to you to deal with all of your issues. No, he says, brothers, family, those of us who are in this thing together. Paul's sentiment here is, you are worth it to me to write and address these things, hoping to be able to correct it. I think that should be our sentiment as well. These are not adversaries. These are family members. These are are part of the body of Christ. These are part of the bride of Christ. C.K. Barrett says, you should be rightly related to your fellow Christian, not simply because you're both members of the same organization, but because he is your brother for whom Christ died. Boy, we, we see it differently than that in the modern church though. Paul doesn't treat those in Corinth differently. But we often do. In fact, we'll even think or maybe even say things along this line you know, uh, we're members of the same congregation, but we're different. It shouldn't be that way. I'll tell you a very harsh truth that I learned as a pastor when we were in the original building and we ran out of space and we had to go to two services until the new building was finished to hold us all. People said to me privately, you know, I'm kind of glad of this because I didn't enjoy going to church with so-and-so, so I, know I go to the early service because I know they go to the late. That's a huge, huge issue. Huge issue. And, and, and I get it. I'm a human. People smell different and look different and act different and think differently than you do about a lot of different things. But that's like your left hand saying about your right hand, I wish it was just cut off. I'm the hand in this body, right? I can do everything the right hand can do, and that right hand's always got crud under its fingernails. It never gets washed as well as I do when when we get in the sink. I think we could do well without it. Now, that's silly, right? But we act that way toward other people. And the more modern we get as a society, the farther away we get away from the way these people lived, the more you see more of that. And it's all in the names of etiquette and good manners and privacy. Privacy is a big one these days. Do you remember when you were growing up as a kid in a family? How much privacy did you have? And see, this 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 has become a problem in our homes, and it's affected the church. It's infected the church. Let me say it that way. Like, I grew up in a home with one bathroom. Initially, it was one bathroom that didn't have a shower. It had a tub, so you everybody had to take baths, and I was the youngest. So guess when my turn was? Last, I got gray water. I remember that as a kid. <laughs> Eventually, we got rich, <laughs> and we moved into a an old house that it had a shower in it. But it was just you, you were in that thing together. If your if your if your mom licked your hand and wiped your hair down, that's all right. It was mama spit. So it was. It was not germy for whatever reason. But we've gotten away from that mentality. You you look at houses from the 1950s and earlier. What was the square footage in those houses? A thousand feet. Less than 1,000 square feet. You go looking to buy a new house now, and it's a little different in Nashville because we've we've had a housing boom and things are very expensive and people can't afford this, but there was a time where Anything less than 1,800 square feet was considered a little house. I mean, 2,000 to 2,500 was comfortable. You had to have, for four people, mom and daddy and two kids, right? You had to have four bedrooms, two and a half baths, a living room, a den, and all of this space. And if you have this, great, that's exciting. I try to get as much space as we can. We just we built on just so we can have a little bit more space for four boys. Poor boys. I'm not saying it's wrong to have any of that. What I'm saying is, is the mentality that we have to have that because if we don't have that, we won't have any privacy. See how that's where there's a problem and and it's infected the church. It was so funny when we did build on, uh, Jack and Henry had always shared a room, always shared a room. It took them a little while to get used to each having their own space. In fact, initially, I don't think they liked it. If they hadn't heard me gripe about how much it costs to build those rooms, they'd have probably said, Dad, can we just go back and... They'd heard me talk about how much I spent, and they, you know, I'm a cheapskate when it comes to spending my own money. I don't mind spending your money. But when it comes to spending my own, I'm a real cheapskate. With it. And I'd probably gripe just enough that they were all just thinking to themselves, I- I'd rather be sharing a room with my brother, but I'm not about to ask Dad, you know. They've gotten over it now, and it's not a big thing. But... Um, this This mentality's come into the church to where we've we used to we used to kind of be in things together, even churches used to be smaller you, you didn't worry about not having a comfortable place to sit you just squished in the pew next to the family who was on the other end and you, they slid that way and you squished in this way and there you were all together in that thing but now we've got to have all of this square footage. did you know there are actually statistics provided to churches for the amount of square footage per? Human male, human female, baby, toddler, adolescent, teenager, that you should provide in your facilities? What do you think gets the most square footage with in those statistics? Babies. The smallest little thing that could stay in mama's arms the whole time. We're, we're here for an hour, hour and a half. Could stay in mama's arms the whole time. requires the most square footage of anything when it comes to facilities for churches. No, I'm not anti that. I love babies. And I'm all for babies having changing tables and cribs. And we're a wealthy church for the most part. I'm glad we can provide a lot of those things. My point to you is those things, are physical symptoms of a spiritual problem. And Paul is addressing here this spiritual problem. He begins though by saying, brethren, we're brothers in this. We're family together, but we're not acting like family. We're not even acting like neighbors. We're acting like enemies. I think we in the local church neglect what is said here. We aren't rightly related to our fellow Christians. At best we think, oh, well, we're, we're members of the same church. In fact, the more and more those models change, multi-services, multi-sites, all of these things, we're not even really a family anymore. I told you a negative to the two services. I'll tell you a positive through that. There was two families in our community who one family was inviting the other family to, to church. And the other family said, oh, we go to church. Well, where do y'all go? They were at soccer together. We go to Harpeth Baptist Church. And the family invited them said, oh, we go to Harpeth Baptist Church too. And they said, well, you must go to the early service. Yeah, well, we go to the late service. Well, that was neat. They were both inviting each other to church. But you can see even through that how it's different than what Paul is addre- writing addressing here. We're doing things... To them, This what we do is would be foreign. It would be odd. They might say, why, why do y'all do it like that? Why do you have all of this? Why do you need these things? We've become disconnected. So Paul writes with the tenderness of a brother, but still he writes as an an authoritative person with an authoritative position. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through the authority of Christ, he is writing to them. This is not uh, just a couple people associated with the same gathering of Christians talking a thing through. This is an apostle with an authoritative position writing to address a real sin issue, using his given authority to do so. Later, he clarifies his position well in 2 Corinthians 1, 24. He says, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. Paul writes that saying, I'm not lording over your faith. I'm working together with you for your joy in the faith that you have. Another thought that we have here in addition to just Paul writing authoritatively is that he is writing simply using the name of Christ. That's Calvin's view as he comments here on this passage. He says, as, however, they might not perhaps be sufficiently aroused by mere exhortation. He uses earnest entreaty for he adjures them by the name of Christ that as they loved him, they should aim at promoting harmony. Do parents, do you ever pull that card on your kids? I am your father. What do you think it does to me to see you fight like this? Can you not just act peaceably for one day? This is, this is, that's how Calvin says, Paul is writing to the Corinthians here. He's saying, for Christ's sake, the name of Christ, with, with the love you have toward him, have that toward each other because you are all part of the body. You're in this thing together. Well, what does he say? He says, I appeal to you for unity. So brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus, I appeal to you for unity. And he says three things there in the remainder of verse 10, that you all speak the same thing, number one, and that there be no divisions among you, number two. And then number three, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. John Walford, who's with Walford and Zuck, are the two commentaries who put together the commentators who put together the Bible knowledge commentary? It's commonly known as the BKC. He I don't use them a lot. It's, it's a good commentary, it's a good one for you to have in your home, but I, I think he lays this one out well. He says his appeal was for harmony, not the elimination of diversity. Okay, don't miss that part here. Paul says here, I appeal to you for unity. He desired unity of all the parts. Walford goes on to say here, like a quilt of various colors and patterns blended together in a harmonious whole. Charles Hodge said, There is but one exhortation in this verse, which is expressed first in general terms that you all say the same thing, and then is explained in the negative form that there be no divisions among you, and then positively that you be perfectly joined together. I want us to explore this because we get this out of balance a lot of times. There's the appeal for harmony here, not the appeal to eliminate diversity. It's a call to unity. It's not a call to uniformity. If we're not careful in the church, we'll take passages like this and we'll say, that's exactly right. We should all dress alike and act alike and talk alike and think alike. And anybody who does different than me Or the majority of us is unholy, and the rest of us are holy. That's not what Paul is saying here at all. In fact, he is likely saying the opposite, making the point that we are constantly trying to avoid division, while we're not actively pursuing unity. You know what you'll get if you're constantly just trying to avoid division? You get a a group of hypocrites. We're going to do our best to, to to not be divisive and to never have divisions among us. No, we're going to do our best to pursue unity, and you know what's going to happen sometimes as we pursue unity? Some of us are going to have fights and now hopefully there'll be church fights. you know the church fights are those that you say something that you regret immediately and they say something back that they regret immediately and you' "I'm so sorry." Will you forgive me, yes, I forgive you. Forgive me, yes, I forgive you. Okay, let's hug it out and go home and we're brothers and sisters in Christ again. Oh, we've gotten so much more sophisticated in the modern church. Our definition of unity is, you know, like these factories, they put up these signs that say this many accident-free work days. We've had 389 accident-free workdays. You know what's happened in factories since they started keeping up with that kind of stuff? Production has just decreased. Time. We don't want to make a mistake. We don't want to mess anything up. I'm okay with people not getting their fingers chopped off and not being killed on their job. I get that and I appreciate it. But some of it is just overboard on what it is that they have to do. And it actually gets in the way of doing their job. This is what's happened in the modern church. We've gotten so sophisticated, worrying about, we've heard about unity. We've sang the songs. We've said the quotes. We've been to the seminars. We understand that the one thing that should be different than us, in us and in the rest of the world, is this unity that we have in Christ because we're all one together, though we're different as individualists outside of that 100%. I mean, some of you people are from California. It's just odd. But here we are, smiling and happy all together. How can this be? Will it be through Jesus? That's what we have. In defense of that, we mean well. We're constantly looking out for divisions. What that leads to is a bunch of faking and no actual unity. Oh, we haven't had... A, we've had 389 fight-free church days. But some of you don't know each other's birthdays. Now, I don't know them either. I've got them in a calendar. We don't have to know each other's birthdays to have unity, but... I don't know your name. I should have your phone number. We should talk. And we should get together. We should know about each other. And the bigger a, a, a local gathering gets, it may not be you with everybody else in the gathering. There should be some people there that you're tight with. Tight like family. That's what he said, brethren. Let me take that thought further for you to help illustrate it and also to drive that point home it's like with our holiness when we avoid sinning but at the same time we're not actually pursuing holy things. See, there's a difference there. There are unsaved people who avoid sinning. They don't call it that. They call it being moral and ethical. They're not holy. There's no difference in you if all you do is avoid sinning. That's not making you holy. Holy. It's keeping you from being unholy, but what makes you holy is doing holy things. This is kind of Paul's take on the unity here. They might have been trying real hard to avoid being divisive. Well, this church wasn't, honestly. We'll get to it in just a moment. But they weren't really working at their unity. It's kind of like when we're denying ourselves as a spiritual discipline, right? That's a good discipline. I don't like to talk about it. Because I don't like to deny myself. I fully intend to eat ice cream tonight before I go to bed. My doctor would say, every now and then you should not have that bowl of ice cream before bed for your health's sake and also just to prove that you can still refuse it and you're not addicted. I'm not addicted, I just really like it and I want it so I can have it. I deny myself all of my childhood when my mama told me no. And now that I'm an adult, I can eat whatever I want, right? Well, that's, that's that happens in our our spiritual lives. We deny ourselves some things as a spiritual discipline. But are we in place of that clinging to the Holy Spirit? You remember these disciples were talking to Jesus about we're going to cast out these demons, and Jesus said, "Don't cast out the demons, you have nothing to fill the you have nothing to fill the house with." They said, "If you you clean the house, the, the body possessed with these demons, he's going to go get seven of his friends and bring them back because you cleaned up this this filthy place that he was." Living in there. The point being, until the Holy Spirit can move in, you casting out those demons wasn't doing any good. Well, folks, it's like that in our lives too. We have this idea of self-denial and how it's a step toward holiness. Well, it is, but it's not true holiness until it's being emptied of me to be filled with him. If I'm being filled with him more and more, now that is true spirituality. Now, Paul is going to write more in this letter, and he's going to address many, many problems. He's going to talk about their parties. He's going to talk about their lawsuits. He's going to talk about the tensions they have between strong believers and weak believers. He's going to talk about the indifference that they have toward the poor at the Lord's Supper. He's going to talk about them boasting about their spiritual gifts. That's just prideful. All of this reflects the spirit of dissension that was in this church community in Corinth. And that's what we're addressing here. Just that spirit of dissension. We're not talking about the specific things just yet. It's just this idea, this this attitude of dissension. Now, what is Paul's appeal specifically? First, that you all speak the same thing. They should all have one voice. They should speak as with one mouth. Second, he appeals to them that there be no divisions among them. to Take away the evil that is breaking up your unity. Be- beware of strife. And then third, he appeals to them, be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. So be agreed in mind and will. Be in harmony. Now, the Bible says that that's what we should do. But I read that. And the, m- the more I studied it, I thought to myself, well, how in the world? We think about that. How are we all to have one voice? How are we all to speak with one mouth? How are we to avoid strifes? How are we to be in harmony? How is this at all possible? Well, it's only possible in doctrinal unity. And this is where he's going here. MacArthur says this well. He says, Paul is emphasizing the unity of doctrine and the local assembly of believers. Doctrinal unity clearly and completely based on scripture must be the foundation of all church life. Both weak commitment to doctrine and commitment to disunity of doctrine will severely weaken a church and destroy the true unity. In its place, there can only be shallow sentimentalism or superficial harmony. And that's what's plaguing the modern church. Shallow sentimentalism, and superficial harmony. We're gonna get into a little bit of the shallow sentimentalism in a couple Sundays. When we get up to Luke chapter eight, the parable of the sowers, the sower, the seeds, the soils. I'm sure you're familiar with that parable. Jesus lays out well there the importance of sound doctrine, rich doctrine, deep doctrine, but what the modern church has done instead for the sake of growth and numbers has made it to where it's just, just right there where everybody can grasp it. You've probably heard people talk about that, haven't you? Just get it right down there on the people's level. Well, there's a problem with doctrine. The only people's level it's ever gonna be on are Holy Spirit-filled people. If it's ever grasped by people not filled with the Holy Spirit, then that wasn't Bible doctrine you remember before you were saved? Especially those of you who were saved as adults. Wasn't the Bible just like Greek to you? Just kind of odd, useless. I mean, you could get the stories. You you got it. This dude, this kid named David with a slingshot killed a giant named Goliath. But like you said, well, I don't even believe that, but I don't even see the, 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 the importance of that story. But then you get saved and the Holy Spirit moves in And you read that story, not only do you believe it and think it's a wonderful miracle, but also you realize that it was telling some old covenant saints, don't give up hope. Just like God enabled this kid to kill a giant and release his people from bondage, there would be this baby born who would release all of God's people from sin bondage. And it painted that picture there. We don't get that when the Holy Spirit's not involved. We just read it through human eyes. Well, Paul is addressing here division in the church and the need for unity. And it has to be doctrinal unity. Else we're just being nice to each other. That's not not unity. I mean, I want you to be nice to each other. But sometimes you're gonna have to be hard-nosed with each other to help each other grow in some doctrinal areas. So this is his appeal. And then we see the report. Now, I don't want us to miss the report. It would help us in our practice to understand this report here. First, the report in verse 11 is, there are contentions among you. It was reported to Paul by those in the house of Chloe that there were contentions among those in the church. Read this with me. For it hath been declared unto me. So he... He introduces this. You've been called to be saints. You've been gifted by God all that you're going to need for this to fulfill this calling. And so I'm appealing to you, brothers. He begins that we put away the divisions among us and that we have this unity. Why? Verse 11. For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now, If we're not careful, we already dislike Chloe and all the people in this house. Now, I don't know if Chloe's a male or female. It doesn't really say. It would be odd for it to be a female in their culture, but it sounds like a female name. It would not be odd in the New Testament church culture, though, for it to be a female, which is a wonderful thing. There's no more Jew and Greek. There's no more male and female. There's no more bond and free. We are all one in Christ, right? So... You, you read about Aquila and Priscilla. You read about Lydia, the seller of purple, who seems to be the one organizing this church in her area. And now we have this household of Chloe. But if you're not careful, you'll think to yourself, Tattletale? Why is Chloe running her big mouth to Paul? See, as a man, I need her to be a woman so I can give her down the road here. Ladies, if you need it to be a dude. Why is he running his big mouth to Paul? Well, I want to address that. This reporting here is commendable. Now, first, let me just address what they're reporting. They reported to Paul that there's quarreling going on in our church. And maybe they've dealt with it or not. We don't get that information just yet. But they're saying to Paul, we need help with this. Now, let's get some verses on quarreling. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3. Paul says, for you are yet carnal. So same letter to the same church. You are yet carnal. For, where, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? Right? So he's saying here, you should be spiritual because you've been called to be saints, but you're acting carnal because of the envying and the strife and divisions that is going on among you. Over in Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, he says, For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as you would not. That's the way my kids are sometimes when I get home. I don't find them as I would, so they don't find me as they wish I would be. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. They haven't done what I told them to do, and I get home, and I'm not Ward Cleaver. Hello, June. How are the boys today? I am a Fiery Head Daddy. Ooh, do what I said. <laughs> I'm going to murder someone. Not really. That's what Paul says here. He says, "I fear when I come to you, I'm not going to find you as I would, and that you won't be found as you won't find me as you would like to, lest there be debates, endings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, selling, swe- swellings, tumults." Romans thirteen thirteen. Paul says to the church in Rome, "Let us walk honestly, as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in." Chambering and wantonness, not in strife, and envying. Oh, we would, we wouldn't dare be a part of a church where there was rioting, drunkenness, chambering, and wantonness. I'm going to leave those in the old English, and you can go to find them yourselves. But Paul throws right into that mix strife, and envying. For some reason, we've let those not be quite as bad. Oh, the. The drunken sex orgies, those people are crazy. Paul says, you guys aren't any better with the divisiveness that's going on among you. Backbiting, being envious of each other, manipulative. he you got to stop all that. It's just as bad. So this reporting then is commendable. They did not try to hide the problems. He says, it's been declared by me. And then he tells exactly who told. McDonald says here, in naming his informers, Paul lays down an important principle of Christian conduct. We should not pass on news about our fellow believers unless we are willing to be quoted in the matter. If this example were followed today, it would prevent most of the idle gossip which now plagues the church. You know how that looks. You you don't deal with it. We dealt with that this summer, right? What should you do? You should go to them directly. You don't deal with it. You've been instructed by me. Don't come to me if you're not willing to deal with it yourself because that's not biblical. And so it just turns into, well, did you hear about or what's going on with, did you ever ask those questions? I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned. And sometimes it takes information to help us with our level of concern and our praying. But get to the root of what you're doing there. Why do you really want to know? Because you just want to know. We're, we're curious, we're nosy. I have cats, I love my cats. I apologize to those of you who it offends that I really like these cats. But my cat Jojo is the, you know, curiosity kills the cat. What's, this cat is alive but would be dead were that were true. She has the most curious cat. She will we'll go over to Aunt Radonna's house She'll follow me right along just to see where we're going. And then when we open the door, she peeks in, looks over, and sees it done. She runs right back on home. She just has to know. I'll turn the sink on to wash my hands. She'll hop up there, and she'll look, and she'll swat at the water and try to figure out what it is. Now, hates water. I give my cats baths. I know people say you're not supposed to do that, but animals are gross, and I don't really like them in the house, and sometimes the boys let them get in the house. So if they're going to be in the house, they're going to get a bath. But they hate water. You have to put gloves on, they'll claw you to death. But anyways, but this curious cat can't stand to see this drip of water and, and hear the, the sounds of all this without touching it and licking it and trying to figure out what's going on with this water. We're not too much different as humans. You're curious. You want to know? You've got to know. I'm all right with you knowing. I'm all right with being in, up in each other's business. But I'm not all right, and Paul's not all right, when it's in the sense of strife, envy, manipulation, backbiting, and tailbearing. Are you turning this into help, or are you turning it into sin? And there's a fine line there in a family. My sister Brandy, when we were kids, I'd go figure out what she was up to, and then I'd go report to mom and dad so that my sister would get a spanking. Why? Well, she just did it to me last week. Now it's different. I'm an adult. She's an adult. We text. What's going on? What are y'all up to? I send pictures of my kids. She sends pictures of her kids. I send her my kids fundraisers and she gives me money. She sends me her kids fundraisers and I give her that money right back. (laughs) It's not for the sake of getting her spanked. It's not for the sake of Telling my parents if she gets in trouble, we actually have a relationship of brother and sister. That's what it should look like in the church. Not this, I'm going to sneak around and figure out the dirt and go share the dirt and all of that. It's crazy. The house of Chloe was burdened about these divisions. They went to the right person with these divisions and they were not afraid to be mentioned by Paul as being the reporters of these divisions. Now this is different. This is great. This is not the typical cloak and dagger acting that you see going on in the church. In fact, it's that kind of mess that usually makes the problem worse and not better when we almost pretend like it's not there and we whisper around it in the back. And you know what the usual motivation for that is? We don't want to cause a church split. What well, that's happening, let me clue you in on something. The church is already split. You know, well, We want to be a growing church. All right, here's how you grow. It's not by getting more people to walk through the door. It's by getting that mess cleaned up in your lives and letting the Holy Spirit fill in the difference and watch yourself spiritually glow. And then you won't even have to ask people to come to church with you. They'll see the change in your life and they won't be able to stay away because they'll say, I remember that person. They were mean. They called themselves a Christian, but they were rough. Gossip, divisive, and now they're sweet and nice. Nice. I got to go see what's happening. They've joined a cult and they're being brainwashed. It's got to be. There's too great of an attempt in the modern church at privacy where privacy is not warranted. Now, you could give me some examples to prove this generalization wrong, but I just want to make the general statement tonight here that in a church family, a local assembly of Christians, what, what privacy do we need? We're way too private about things that we shouldn't be. Paul reports openly here that it was them. I like that, that word's in there, them. You know about they, the house of they. I love that little, that's a good poem. I'll have to find it for you. All of them of Chloe's house who came to him with this. Well, if we are the body, the Bible says fitly joined together. If we are a family, a community, a church, why would we keep each? other keep things from each other there's only one reason that I could think of that would be a legitimate reason to keep things from each other inside of a family inside of a community inside of a church it's pride and I'm not saying it's a good reason or a right reason I said legitimate the only answer you can give me for things like unspoken prayer requests (laughs) If you're not clear on that, I'm anti-unspoken prayer requests. Why do they exist? For privacy. Because sometimes we are burdened about something that we don't feel will be right for us to share publicly with other people. Right? That all sounds legitimate, doesn't it? I'll I'll make a a hypothetical. Here's John Doe over here. And, well, let's not even get into it. You understand that's where... those things came from, these private prayer requests. Well, shouldn't we be able to trust each other in an assembly this small that we could share exactly what's happening? Not all the dirty details, but just say, this is what's happening in John Doe's life and we've got to be praying for him and leave it at that and everybody get to praying on it. Surely we should be able to. But we've been convinced by society. We've been convinced by television. We've been convinced by a public school system. We've been convinced by magazines and books and even modern day church practices that that's wrong. Well, it sure wasn't wrong here in Corinth. The House of Chloe says, Paul, this is what's happening. Paul writes back to the church and said, the House of Chloe says this is what's happening. Here's what to do about it. Surely we in a group this size could just be open and honest with each other. And I get there's some things you probably just don't want to know. If I was struggling with the temptation to rob banks, now I'm being silly there. There's some pretty awful things I could tell you that that a person my age has temptations with. You don't want to hear all the nitty gritty details there. And it probably doesn't do you any good for me to say some of those things. But it'd probably do a lot of us good to hear other people say, I'm I'm having some struggles with temptation and I wish y'all would pray for me on that. You know what would do for me? If I heard some of you say that, first thing it would do would encourage me, like Paul encouraged the church here. I'm not the only dirty, rotten, filthy, low down, good for nothing scoundrel in the bunch. There's some other people with some temptations. What have we done instead of being open with each other? We've got good manners. We've got our privacy. We've got our chest bowed out and our shoulders laid back. We look down our noses at these wild churches where people would say things like, please pray for me, I'm battling with temptation right now. Oh, what an untoward thing to say publicly. How dare they? Dirty sinners. Well, I'm so glad we're holier than they are. Now, I know we think we don't act like that, but I watch you from up here on Sundays. And it's been, it's been pretty interesting since we've been at the Bibb Center because nobody has their spots anymore. You've had to find new spots, and we've still been having some visitors show up. I don't know if they're people hunting us down or if they're going to the Assembly of God Church and think we're it. If they think we're the Assembly of God Church, it shouldn't take them long to figure it out. But I've watched some of you. You're, some of you are a little bit awkward. You come kind of doing this mess here. Privacy where there shouldn't be. We don't share our personal needs. We have health needs, we have financial needs, we have emotional needs, we have physical needs, we have property needs. And for whatever reason, we can't share those things. Why can't we share those things? Why does it take teeth pulling to get even a widow in the church to say something like, my fridge is broken and I need help? That should just be common. That should just be a a regular thing. Hey, there's a widow in the church whose fridge is broken and let's get her a fridge. Do you know how excited it gets the deacons when I get to say to them, this widow needs a fridge? And they, yes, they go to Lowe's and spend somebody else's money and go take a new fridge to this person's house and be a blessing to them. Why has that got to be so private? And, all, well, we don't want to hurt someone's feelings. What are we talking about here? We're family. <laughs> Why does it hurt someone's feelings when the community fund that we've all decided to put together and hold in the bank and, and under the name of Harpeth Baptist Church the treasury gets used to help the people who make up that community. Isn't that what it's there for? I know we've got to be smart with that. If we bought everybody in here a new fridge, you can't pay the preacher, and I'd like to get paid. It would be nice. But at the same time, why don't we share these needs? I would like to drive this point home longer, but I'm over time, and I need to finish probably bigger than anything I've talked about so far is the negligence we see towards sharing our own doctrinal deficiencies. I don't understand this. You don't hear that much. What's wrong with that? Why, why not just, I mean, right now, middle of a sermon, I, I said some word you don't understand. Raise your hand. What was that word again? I'm gonna write it down. i want to go look it up. What would be wrong with that? Wait a minute, you just said this, but I don't understand that. Or I didn't think we believed like that. Why don't we share doctrinal deficiencies? Or how about, I understand the doctrine you just taught, but I'm really struggling to agree with it. I'll be honest. I, I did not grow up in a church that helped to reform doctrine like we do as a church. And so the my initial submersion into the doctrine of predestination, election, Foreknowledge, knowledge, it just made me feel funny. It just didn't feel right. But I just kept reading my Bible and it kept saying it. And so I had to think, well, either I'm right and the Bible's wrong, or I'm wrong and the Bible's right. Or maybe the people teaching it are just not teaching it right and I need to understand it differently. Well, what did acknowledging all of that cause me to do? Study. To show myself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Do you know what the privacy matter in this, the, the unwillingness to admit it drives us to do? Watch the Andy Griffith show. If you're pretending like you know all these doctrines, you're not going to read through your Bible because you're afraid some of them are going to come up and you're, you're going to have to deal with something you've kind of put out of your mind is I don't know if I believe that or I, I struggle with understanding that. Well, this wasn't happening in Corinth. For all of their problems, they had one thing going for them. Somebody reported back to Paul and said, man, we need help with this. There's divisions in our church. And so Paul writes to deal with it. Let me quickly finish these verses. Verse 12, he addresses the problem head on. You are exalting the names of men. Now this I say that every one of you say, I am of Paul and I of Apollos and I of Cephas and I of Christ. Now we know who Paul is. Apollos was a contemporary of Paul. He was another preacher, obviously had somewhat of a following because people were claiming, well, I'm, I'm kind of behind. And we do this, by the way. Well, I like MacArthur. Oh, well, I like Sproul. Well, Sproul baptizes babies, so I like Lawson. And if you don't know who any of those names are, I'll give you some other names that you can claim too if you want to get in on this name-dropping game. Well, that's what was happening there. Apollos, Acts 18.28, tells us he was a preacher from Alexandria. Egypt. So he was maybe an Egyptian. He's going to be commended later for the solid work he does in the gospel. That'll come in chapter number three. Cephas. Who knows who Cephas is? No? There you go. That's who I thought. you. I did not know who Cephas was. I was reading through this and I was like, who is Cephas? And then um, I heard, I read a commentator say that that this is Peter, but he gave no proof to that. And I thought, I don't think he's right. He didn't give me any proof to that, but the more I dug around, the more I found John chapter 1, verse 42. Jesus calls him Cephas. That is his name. And then the more I got to digging into it, the the, the, the the name Cephas is an Aramaic name that means rock. And then Petros is where we would say Peter, which would be the Greek name, which means rock. And that was the name that Jesus gave to Peter. So that's who Paul's talking about there. So we know Paul, we know Apollos, we know Cephas now. And Paul writes here saying, there's a problem with this. You're exalting the names of men. Warren Wiersbe says they got their eyes off the Lord and on the Lord's servants. And this led to competition. Well, Christ alone is to be exalted in the church. Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, he might have the preeminence. So it's not Paul, it's not Apollos, it's not Peter, it's Christ. Now, just a brief note on division in the church. Division has always been a problem among groups of people. And the people of God are not excluded from this. Nearly every letter to a New Testament church deals with or mentions division in some way. We even read in the New Testament that the apostles did not always agree and get along with one another. These were guys doing miracles. And they didn't always see eye to eye. So as we think about division, don't think of it as, oh, we're going to hear these sermons and it's going to fix the problem. No, we're going to hear these sermons and we're going to realize the Bible is the solution to the problem. So when we encounter this problem, we can go to the Bible. Until the curse is lifted, there's going to be divisions. All right. And then we end with a doctrinal issue. So there's the appeal here for Unity. He addresses them as brethren. And then, and then we get into the doctrinal issue. Verse 13, in three words, he gives you the, the doctrinal issue. Is Christ divided? And then these rhetorical questions just drive that point home. So let's answer them. Is, is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, of course not. And that's Paul's point here. To divide the church behind men is to deny Jesus who died and purchased his church. So Paul states here, I was not crucified with you. for you. You were not baptized in my name. We are all baptized in Jesus' name. Wiersbe points out it is wrong to identify any man's name with your baptism other than the name of Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful, we'll be all too concerned with being baptized by a certain preacher being baptized in a particular place, being baptized on a particular day. Like I got baptized by chance in the river on Easter Sunday. Like that's the secret code. I mean, it's pretty awesome. If I were you, I'd want to be baptized by me on Easter Sunday in the river. No, of course not. And and that doesn't go away from the sentimental things. Like I've always said to you, one of these days I hope to get over to the Holy Land and if I do, I'm gonna get somebody to baptize me in the Jordan River. Not for my spirituality, not for my relationship with, with God, just because, for the same reason I like to wear ties and have stained glass windows in the church I go to. It just seems like the thing to do, right? Get dunked in the Jordan River. Jesus did. But, but these people were taking it too far. And if we're not careful, before we know it, we've made our baptism about everything besides the most important thing, Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. Write those verses down. Know those verses. We quote them when we baptize people in our church. Or we quote portions of them. Buried with Jesus in his death when we take them under. Risen to walk in newness of life as we bring them up. That's what it's about. Paul says in Romans 6, Know you not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead, By the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 14, and on then, these divisions made Paul thankful that he had baptized only a few in the assembly there. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized. Any other, He would never want anyone to say that he baptized in his own name and he's not trying to win converts to himself. He's not trying to make a name for himself. And then in verse 17, he explains that Christ did not send him primarily to baptize. Christ sent him to preach the gospel. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Notice his concluding words there in verse 17. This introduces for us the next theme in the rest of this chapter. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. He didn't preach the gospel by using fancy words, not by showing his own personal wisdom with these words. It was all about the cross. In fact, he says, if I had done that, I would have made the cross of Christ of none effect powerless. MacDonald says he knew that if men were impressed by his oratory or his rhetoric, then to that extent, he had defeated himself in his efforts to set forth the true meaning of the cross of Christ. These Corinthians, these, they were Greeks and you know about Greek society. They were great lovers of human wisdom. They regarded their philosophers as national heroes. Surely that spirit came over into this Corinthian church as well. So You have this worship of intellectualism. It's one of the issues that was causing these people to form parties around human leaders. Well, I like Paul. Well, I like Apollos. Well, I like Cephas. What Paul's point that he begins to make here in regards to that is there's a vast difference between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. And there's no use to begin trying to reconcile the two because you can't. And if you try, you're getting away from the main point. He didn't send me to baptize, Paul said, but to preach the gospel. Now he's going to go on here and talk about God chose the foolishness of preaching to save some. He said, where are the wise? Where are the, we're, we're just kind of foolish in this, according to the world's wisdom. If you were in our Sunday school class before the tornado, we had just worked through some of this. and It was nice and I enjoyed it, but you're going to get to hear me preach it again. All right, that's it for tonight. Is Christ divided? Certainly he's not. Well, if Christ is not divided, why is his church? Church, I, I would caution you to not put away too awful quickly some of the things we talked about here tonight and considering your own actions, your own behaviors, your own way about things. Where are you guilty? What can you change? How can you do it differently? Because the, the community family aspect of the church is the biggest thing under attack in the world today. I mean, just think about the last couple of years. What has happened in the world? Keep your face covered. Don't get too close to anyone. Stay home as often as possible. I and mean, just those three things really play over into church community, don't they? I come here to see your face. I need to know if you're smiling or crying. And if you're crying, you get a hug. And if you're smiling, you get a high five. Actually, I don't do either of those, but you get the point. Kind of pat you on the back wirelessly. We we sit near each other. I want to hear you sing. We gather. I'm thankful for the live stream and the recordings. But we, we did it Sunday. We, we tuned in to a church in Dallas. Steve Lawson's preaching there right now. I wanted to hear Dr. Lawson preach, so we tuned into their live stream. Great, it was a great sermon. Enjoyed it very much. They sang some good songs, and we sang along with them from home. But when it was all said and done, we didn't feel like we'd been to church. We didn't feel connected with that local assembly. Not in one bit, one way whatsoever. I couldn't call them up and say, hey, now listen, we became a part of your church on Sunday because we tuned into your YouTube page, and, and, and we wanted to get an appointment with the preacher. And also, we wanted to talk to you about that flower arrangement that you had up front. We're just not big fans. We weren't. They would we you're crazy. We don't know who you are. How much did you give to our fund last year? But here we are. The world says, oh, be, be, sar- be sarcastic. Be a skeptic. Be on edge. Don't let anybody get anything over on you. You've got to take care of you. Guard your privacy. Be serious about your safety. I'm getting told by the children's ministry time that I have to stop. That's the problem with children's ministry? See, if we didn't have children's ministry, if they are all in here, if they were all in here, we'd have got out 30 minutes ago, see? Because <laughs> I'd have been saying, these kids are ready to go. And I'm all about privacy and security and all that from the world, but we've let it infect our church. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for time and your word. Use your word to mold us and make us. This is our prayer through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.